Welcome to Under the Oaks. I'm Warren Thompson. And I'm Pastor Trent Sari. We're coming to you from Western Kashkanong Lutheran Church, a member congregation of the Evangelical Lutheran Synod. Uh, we are currently stuck in rush hour traffic here in, in downtown Pleasant Springs, Wisconsin. A little heavier today than normal. Yeah, those tractors are getting in the way. We're glad you could join us. And the first two episodes, we, we, we hit on a couple of topics we talked about the natural knowledge of God. What can we know about God apart from the Bible, just by looking at the world around us? In episode two, we talked about what does the Bible say about itself. Today, we're going we're gonna to ask, what does the Bible say about God? Who is God? What is God? Uh, what is he like? All of those things we're going to try to answer based on what the scriptures themselves have revealed to us. So join us for this discussion. The first question, Lauren, is probably one that would be kind of obvious to most people. I mean, what is God? And yet, when we, when we think about that, uh, how, might, how might you answer that question? Well, I'd, I'd say God is uh, in charge of everything, created everything. Yeah, the supreme being. I think that, you know, right. that's kind of what most people tend to think of. You know, but what does that mean? What is he like? Is he, you know... Do we do we think of about the man upstairs? Is is it should we picture an old man with white hair? Or, <laughs> right. I mean, uh, there's all sorts of paintings and, and uh, ideas out there. So, what is God? Is a question that maybe is a little bit more complicated than it seems at first uh, hearing. But as we look to the scriptures, we can uh, we can answer this question as well. John chapter four, Jesus said, "God is spirit." and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, God is a spirit being. Okay, that sounds obvious enough. I mean, fair enough. It's not something I didn't know before, right? But there are implications to that, and uh, we'll see that in just a couple of verses from now when we, we differentiate between spirit beings and material beings. So God is spirit. That's important. We'll come back to that. In Exodus chapter 3, we see God reveal himself to man, specifically to Moses there in the burning bush. And we see that God is a personal being. He has a name. He wants to be in a relationship with his creation. God said to Moses, I am who I am. In the Hebrew, it's Yahweh. It's the verb to be in the present tense. So he's the being one, the existing one, the one who is. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, here we come to that part about the Spirit. In Luke 24, Jesus said, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. Now, again, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. It doesn't have eyes, ears, nose, hands, arms, like you and I do. This is going to be important. It's going to be something that we come back to in a later discussion, uh, specifically when we talk about where is Jesus now? He is seated at God's right hand. Well, there's lots of passages in the Bible that talk about the eyes of the Lord being on the righteous or the right arm of the Lord doing valiantly in battle or something like that. And we have the tendency to picture that in physical terms. 
obviously it's described in physical terms because it describes something about God, an attribute of God, his power, his wisdom, whatever it might be. But in actuality, God is spirit. He doesn't have eyes, ears, nose, arms like you and I do. That's not the properties of a spirit, as Jesus says. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And then finally, in John chapter 1, Jesus said, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So when we talk about spirit beings, they are not visible. They are invisible to us. That's an important thing to remember. So God is a spirit. He's a personal being. He is without flesh and blood, and therefore he is invisible. Now somebody's going to say, well, what about Jesus? He had flesh and blood. Yeah, that's true. The, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, took on human flesh. But when we speak about God, God is spirit. So that's a little bit about what is God and how we might answer that question but we also want to know about God, right? I mean, that's really what we're getting to. What does the Bible teach us about God? And here we're going to be talking about what we might describe as attributes of God or characteristics of God. What are the, what are the things that describe God? Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So God is eternal. He's without beginning and without end. And that's really hard for us to comprehend. Everything we know and understand is, is couched in this frame of reference that we call time. To imagine something that is not bound by time, that was without beginning, without end, he's always been it's hard for us to comprehend. In some ways, it's impossible for us to comprehend. I remember trying to wrap my head around this as a child, the idea of eternity without, without end in the context of eternal life. At a certain point, it became troubling to me because I, can't, I couldn't fathom the idea of something that never ends. Everything that I know has a beginning and end. And then the idea that God has always existed, and yet at, at a certain time, he created the heavens and the, and the earth. So, you know, naturally your mind goes, well, what, what was he doing before that? You know, how long was he sitting around before he created? And right. so that's the kind of questions we ask, but really what it's trying to do is it's trying to force God into our frame of reference. We, we try time. and look at everything through our own experiences and we have a beginning and an end. We know um, we, we don't remember things before we were born, so. Right. There's a, there's a past, there's a, there's a present, and there's a future. But for God, he stands outside all of that. And that's probably the easiest way that I've described it to people. Uh, we are on a timeline. If I take a pencil sometimes and I'll, I'll say, we're on this timeline. You know, at one point the world was created, at one point the world will end. So there's a, there's a past, there's a present, and a future. That's the way we comprehend everything. But that's, that's not God. God's not limited. He's not on that timeline. He stands right. outside of it. He's not limited by it. He's not contained by it. So that's the easiest way to describe eternal, maybe. I mean, I, I know that it's a, it's a concept that's really, really difficult to wrap your mind around. And nevertheless, it's true that God has always existed. There was never a beginning. There will never be an end. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, it says, I, the Lord, do not change. God is unchangeable, unchanging. And, and that's good. I mean, I, I think especially 
when we come to know his love and his promises to us, the fact that he's unchanging is reassuring. You know, if he says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, we don't have to wonder, well, maybe he changed his mind. Yeah, it's comforting. Yeah, right. So this is, a, this is a comforting attribute. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? Some of these attributes, though, maybe are comforting in a certain sense, but aren't so comforting in other ways. In Genesis 17, it says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. And we use that term uh, in, in the creeds, and we confess that God is Almighty. You know, what does that mean? What does it mean to be Almighty? All-powerful? Yeah, all-powerful. And if you want a fancy word for that, we say he's omnipotent. He's able to do all things. He's all-powerful. Uh, the old question, is it, is it possible for God to create a rock so heavy that he couldn't lift it? Uh, it's, a, it's a dumb question. Uh, it's meant to sort of be a, a trap, I think. It's easy to, easy to confuse, right? Yeah. Right. There's nothing he can't do. So, yes, he can create a, a tremendously heavy rock, and yes, he can lift it. But he, he's all-powerful. And that is a comfort to us in a certain sense because there's no situation that we could possibly be in uh, that's too much for him. It might be too much for us, but it's not too much for him. Right. So that's good. Uh, he's all-powerful. It's a little bit scary in another way, too. I mean, what are we but measly little human beings compared to the Almighty Creator? So there should be a healthy fear, a healthy reverence and respect for God. We shouldn't treat him like a genie in the bottle who does our bidding and boss him around. He is the one who created the heavens and the earth, and he's the one who's given us life. He can certainly take life as well. In Psalm, uh, well, uh, along those lines, uh, Matthew 19, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible, Jesus said. So again, the idea that there's nothing impossible for God, and that's, that's reassuring. Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Interesting. He's all-knowing. And if we wanted to say, there's, a, there's another fancy word for that, it's omniscient. He knows all things. Is that, a, is that a comfort to you, Lauren, or does that scare you? A little both. Yeah, you answered correctly. Uh, and in some ways, uh, the, the problems that you're dealing with that only you know about the things that you wrestle with in your own mind or the things that, you're, that are happened in your life that you can't tell anybody else and you just want somebody to help you. God knows these things. He knows your struggles. He knows your weaknesses and your pains. So that is comforting. On the other hand, to the sinful nature. Yeah, he knows when you do wrong. Yeah, so, uh, you know, the, the, the old idea at Christmas time, he knows when you've been naughty and when you've been nice. That's right. Uh, only this is for real. And that, that, can, that can be a scary thing. You know, you, we all have baggage or skeletons in our, in our closets or you know, baggage in our past that we would just assume nobody know about. And God knows those things. The things we do in secret, God knows those things too. So that, like you said, it can be a comfort. It can also be kind of scaring. In Jeremiah chapter 23, it says, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? So here we say that God 
is everywhere present. He's omnipresent. There's nowhere we can go that we can flee from him. And we have to be careful with this. Uh, Later on when we talk about uh, the worship of God, where is God for us? We don't say we can go worship him in that tree. I mean, yes, he's everywhere present, but we don't go over to that tree or that rock over there and worship him. He hasn't directed us there for to, to meet him in his presence where he's there for us. He's directed us to the word of the gospel, to the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So merely saying that he's omnipresent is not the end of the, the discussion for a lot of these, you know, when people say, well, you know, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. I can worship God anywhere. I can worship him out on the lake or in the tree stand or wherever I might be. It, it's a faulty notion. It's not true. Where is God for you? He's promised to be there for you in the scriptures as he comes to you in the gospel and word and sacrament. So, yes, he is omnipresent. He's everywhere present. Again, is this a comfort or is this kind of a scary attribute of God? Yes. And the answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, how is it comforting? Why is that a comforting attribute of God, would you say, Lauren? Well, he, he like you said before, he knows our needs. Yeah. So, I mean, when we're lost or we're all alone and, and we feel scared or whatever, God is there. He, he's present. He's an ever-present help in, in times of trouble. So, that's a comfort. On the other hand, as I mentioned before, to the sinful nature, it can be kind of a terrifying thing. Uh, every, all of your bad moments, every time you think you're getting away with something, guess who's also there and who knows all things? Right, God's there looking. Right. So that's, that's something that should scare us in a, in a good way, I guess. You know, it, it, should, it should be a, a good reminder that we're never beyond God's sight. Leviticus 19.2, I, the Lord your God, am holy. So we talk about God's holiness. He's without sin. He's perfectly righteous. It's, a, it's a, in some ways, a concept that's a little bit elusive to us because man was created in holiness too, but he lost that holiness, that image of God in the fall into sin. So holiness to us is kind of above our understanding. We know God is holy, and yet we are only growing in the image of God as believers. We are regaining some of that holiness that was lost, but we're never completely holy, not until we reach heaven. So God is holy, and that's a problem for the unholy, for people who are sinners, right? God is righteous. He's holy. We'll we'll come back to that thought just a second here. Deuteronomy 32, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So we talk about the justness, the justice of God, the justness of God, the holiness of God. And those are two attributes that kind of present us as sinners with a problem. If God is holy, Uh, He doesn't tolerate anything unholy in his presence. And that means you and I cannot be in God's unveiled presence and expect to live. It was a terrifying thing. If anytime people in the Bible are confronted by the holiness of God or his holy angels, they shriek in sheer terror. Uh, Isaiah talks about, surely I'm a dead man for I've seen the Lord. So God's holiness presents us with a problem as sinners. But this next one also, God's justness, his justice So, what does it mean to be just? It means to be fair and impartial. It means 
if, if I say I'm going to punish you for something, if that sin deserves punishment, it has to be done. It has to be punished. I, I'm, I can't be like a parent who threatens and says, try it again and see what happens. And then let it go. And then you let it go. That's not really justness. That's just being a pushover. God is just. If he says it, it's, it's as good as done. And as sinners, we know that our sins deserve God's wrath and his punishment. That's a problem for us. How do we escape the wrath of God, the justness of God, the justice of God over sin? How do we as sinners, how is it that we're able to uh, stand in God's holy presence and not die and be destroyed? And the answer to those two questions cannot be found in us. Correct. So no matter how hard we strive, we're still sinners. We still deserve God's wrath and punishment. Right. We, we can't fix it by ourselves. Right. And no matter how hard we try, we'll never attain that perfect standard of holiness. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, as Jesus says. So God's holiness and his justness are a problem for us. And that problem is only solved. Uh, we're we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves, but I think it's important that we, we even address this right here. That problem is only solved in the person of Jesus Christ, who's fulfilled all holiness and righteousness in our place as our brother in the flesh, and who died the death and took the punishment that we deserved on account of our sins. By his stripes, we're healed. So the only answer to God's holiness and his righteousness and his justness is found in the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. This is going to be an important point that we're going to come back to over and over. 2 Timothy chapter 2, St. Paul says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God is faithful. This is a comforting attribute of God. He, he's true to his word, true to his promises. If he says it, it's as good as done. You can take it to the bank. And I've talked to a lot of Christians out there, and they'll say, well, how are you doing? Well, I'm just, you know, trying to be faithful to God. Well, uh, that's great. I mean, wonderful. But how are you doing in that endeavor? Can you say you've been truly faithful to God? Um, I'm trying. Yeah. The answer is you haven't been. Right. Not according to God's standard. But God is faithful. That's a comfort. Uh, Jesus was faithful. That's a comfort in our place. So, He's faithful to his promises. This is good. Psalm 145, verse 9. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. So his goodness, his mercy. We can talk about grace and mercy. How would you describe grace and mercy? They're pretty closely related. Uh, I don't want to say they're, they're exactly the same. but I guess he, he has a plan for us, and he fulfilled that plan. Um, not from anything we do or what we did. Um, but in spite of us, he solved the problem of sin. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't give us what we deserved, right? right? And that's kind of what right. you just said. So mercy is showing undeserved love. And grace is, is along the same, same thought, same line of thinking. Uh, sometimes we use the acronym for grace, God's redemption at Christ's expense or God's riches at Christ's expense. But it's his undeserved love, as you, as you pointed out. It's undeserved. Mercy, grace, pretty closely Related And also the third one that we hear about in the scriptures, grace, mercy, and peace, uh, peace would flow from God's mercy, from God's grace. So, Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. 
The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Again, a beautiful description of God's grace and what it means for him to be merciful, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And of course, 1 John chapter 4, God is love. Any discussion of love apart from God is really just foolish talk. Uh, the world talks a lot about love. It has a lot of weird definitions of love. Love is tolerance. Love is condoning my bad behavior. Love is in emotion. Love is uh, whatever it might be. Uh, but if you really want to know what love is, it's God. And God's love is far different than man's definition of love. If you want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you know, love is patient, love is kind, keeps no record of wrong, and all those things that St. Paul writes there, obviously not a description of our kind of love. It's other-centered. It's not self-centered. It's not rude or self-seeking. But God is truly love, and uh, we can't know true love unless we know God. So uh, we've, we've pointed out a number of attributes here, or characteristics of God, and we could keep on going. I mean, the list could be uh, huge, I and mean, we could spend days just talking about the attributes or characteristics of God. But we pointed out some of the most common ones that we come across in the scriptures. And, uh, you know, this is something for us to reflect on. I don't think it's something we give a lot of thought to, but what does it mean that God is merciful or that he's good or kind or that he's gracious or loving or all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere present. What, what does this mean for us? And so it's good for us to explore these things sometimes in our meditations. Because a lot of times you hear when people describe God, especially from certain denominations, it's always the angry, mean God. Yeah, the, the wrathful God. Uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God, you know. And then also, too, in, in that Exodus, those Exodus verses, it's forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. It's He's still calling sin, sin. He's not right. ignoring it. Yeah, so that would be, you know, that's exactly right. So the justice of God says this is sin and it deserves punishment. We don't get the right to change the standard and say, well, it's not that bad, you know. Right. Yeah. It's different now. It's you know, it's yeah. harder. I only deserve a little slap on the right. wrist. I, I, I tried. I certainly don't deserve God's wrath. That's right. I'm not I'm not that bad of a right. person, you know. But no. You you're right. So, again, we 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 if you have questions about the attributes of God, uh, you know, certainly let us know, but we're we're going to kind of move on to what is God? What is God like to who is God? And that's a question that we said in the first lesson, you cannot answer by natural knowledge. You cannot answer by looking at the world around you. You have to have the scriptures reveal it to you, who the true God is, what his attitude is toward you, and so on and so forth. And so this is where we're going we're gonna to see what the scriptures themselves say about the only true God. In Deuteronomy 6.4, this is kind of a creedal statement of the Old Testament believers. They call it the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So there is only one God. There's not multiple gods. And yet, of course, if you know Christianity, you know that uh, we confess this doctrine called the Trinity, or that God is triune. Which, which comes out in this next verse, Matthew 28, 19. Jesus said, Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son 
and of the Holy Spirit. And I emphasize the and of because it's not just three different names, it's three distinct persons. That's, that's kind of a great mystery, the scriptures say, and something that is impossible for us to fully fathom. You know, I've heard so many descriptions as to how you would explain the Trinity to somebody who doesn't understand it. And at the end of the day, they all fall short. None of them does it, quite does it. If you really want a good explanation of the Trinity, read the Athanasian Creed, because it sets forth who the triune God is in a series of positive and negative statements. So, and yet even there, I mean, at the end of the day, you're, you're left kind of scratching your head. So the Father is not the Son, the Son's not the Holy Spirit, and yet there are not three gods, there's one God, and yet within the oneness of God, there are three distinct persons, triune, three and one, or one and three. I mean, it's described, I guess, two different ways, depending on what part of Christendom you're in, but, but both are, are getting to the same truth, that God is one, there's only one God, and yet within that one Godhead, there are three distinct persons who are co-equal in majesty and glory and honor and worship and praise. Those three persons are the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and those are distinct from one another. The Son is not the Father and the Spirit and so on and so forth for the rest of the three persons. I make that point because there's been various false teachings over the centuries in, in the history of the church concerning the true God. And, of course, they were refuted in the creeds that we confess every Sunday. And when we confess those creeds, we stand on the same truth that the Christians of all centuries have stood on. We reject the same errors as, this, as those early Christians rejected as well, too. Uh, but sometimes those old errors still continue to creep around, and we find them even popping up here and there within Christendom today. For instance, there was an old heresy called modalism. And modalism basically said, yeah, God is one. And he just basically wears three different masks at different times. So sometimes he's the Father, sometimes he appears as the Son, sometimes he appears as the Holy Spirit. But that's not true. That is denying the distinct persons of the Trinity. And that is not the, the true faith. It's not what the Bible teaches about God. There are people also, such as the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, who you'll sometimes hear about, speak about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet when you press them, they do not confess the triune God. They deny that Jesus is truly God in the flesh. So at the end of the day, the language sounds very similar, but they deny the true God. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that in just a second. Second Corinthians 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So there we see again the three distinct persons of the Trinity, the triune God. Numbers 6, we also see this threefold emphasis back in the Old Testament. And that could be a discussion unto itself. Uh, I know we've, we've talked about this in some of our devotions before too, the Trinity in the Old Testament. Is there enough there that we can say, yes, the Old Testament taught the triune God? as well. And the answer to that is yes, and hopefully we'll get a chance to speak more about that uh, in a future episode. But we do see this threefold emphasis. We see this plurality even within the oneness of God. We see it, it right away in Genesis, let us make man in our image. There's, there's a lot of things. Numbers 6, 
you have the Aaronic benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So although maybe you wouldn't say that this is teaches the Trinity explicitly, it certainly has that threefold emphasis like we see in the Pauline benediction that I just read from 2 Corinthians 13. In Matthew chapter 3, this is where we see the distinction probably most readily in, in all of Scripture at Jesus' baptism. So we've got God the Son, Jesus, who was, was baptized. And it says, Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. So we've got God the Son standing in the Jordan. We've got God the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove. And then we have, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So we have God the Father speaking from heaven, God the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove, and God the Son standing in the waters of the Jordan. Three distinct persons, yet not three gods, one God of one essence, of one substance. So 1 John chapter 2, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So this gets back to that point I just made about, you know, there are religions out there that would have no problem using that language, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet when they deny that Jesus is truly God in the flesh, what does Jesus say? No one who denies the Son has the Father. You are not worshiping the true God. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Romans chapter 8. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ do not belong, does not belong to him. So just like you cannot deny the Son and have the Father, so too, if you do not have the Spirit, you do not belong to Christ. So we see the importance of all three persons of the Trinity when it comes to things like creation, uh, but also when it comes to redemption and when it comes to our salvation and our faith. So this is going to be an important point. There is only salvation in, one, in the one true God. This is the God of salvation, and we must understand that and understand him properly so that we don't deny the Son or that we don't have the Spirit and that we don't belong to Christ. From this we learn, as I said, that God is one. That's the, the un part. You know, we think about uno, one. And then there's the tri part. In this one God, there are three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The true God is the triune God. And we could say there's a relationship between the persons of the Trinity. Sometimes we describe the Father as the creator, the architect of our salvation, the Son as the redeemer, the one who took on flesh to accomplish our salvation, and God the Holy Spirit as the sanctifier, the one who creates and preserves us in the faith. But again, you know, sometimes it's a simplification, but that's, that's one way you can make that distinction. Now, as we've laid this out, we've talked about the characteristics of God, who the true God is. So what does that mean for us? What should our attitude uh, when we think about the mystery of the Holy Trinity be? As we said, this is a great mystery. Right. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So the point here is the doctrine of the Trinity, look, it, you know, we get it. We, we, we can understand it because it's clearly taught insofar as it's clearly taught, but then it, it goes beyond our reason. It's, uh, it's unreasonable for us to think that we're ever going to completely wrap our minds around it. On the other hand, 
it it's not so unclear that we can just simply reject it and say, well, that just sounds too bizarre. I can't understand it. Therefore, it can't be true because it's clearly, clearly revealed in the scriptures. So we, we dare not reject it. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, God alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. So again, th- this idea that Uh, It's not something that you're going to be able to fully wrap your mind around. I mean, if you want it to fit into a nice, neat little box, it's not going to. And there are many things in the scriptures that don't, Uh, which is what you'd expect if the Bible is truly God's word. You know, if if you were to write your own religion and invent your own religion, chances are everything would sort of fit together pretty nicely. It would make sense. Yeah, it would would be logical and it would be reasonable and it would make sense. Uh, but God doesn't ask us our opinion. He doesn't say, oh, does, is this okay with you? Or does this make sense to you? He is who he is, and he's revealed himself to us in this way. So, John chapter 1, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So while the Trinity is beyond our understanding, we certainly say that the triune God has revealed himself to us in the scriptures, and most specifically through the person of Jesus Christ. So it's impossible to know the true God apart from Jesus Christ. We'll talk more about that in lessons to come. Romans chapter 11, Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Uh, As I said, because the doctrine of the Trinity is something that we can't fully understand now, we we accept what God has revealed to himself by faith. And faith is the certainty of things unseen. So people, you know, sometimes they'll use it as an excuse. Well, I guess we just got to take it on faith. And as if it's unclear, unknowable. And that's not what we're talking about here. We're saying that the way we know God, the way we've come to know him, is through what he's revealed to us, but we we believe it by faith. We accept it by faith. So that, I guess, requires us to define what we mean by believing in God or what we mean by faith in God. Let's just kind of break it down into components here. What does it mean to believe in God? What does it mean to have faith in God? Obviously, there's a certain component that we would have to say is called knowledge. In John 17, Jesus said, This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So, you don't believe in something you don't know about. Obviously, you have to have knowledge about who this God is, what he's done for you. You believe something, and that something is a truth, and that truth is revealed to us. There's a certain amount of what we call head knowledge. But head knowledge is not the same thing as faith. And this is kind of, you know, it's part of it, but it's not It's not the, the same thing. Why do I say that? Because there are plenty of people who believe that Jesus was a true man who died for the sins of the world, even they might even say, yeah, sure, I believe that he's the Son of God. That doesn't necessarily equate to saving faith. It's not the same thing. The devil knows a lot about God, probably right. more than, than we do in some ways. Yet, it's not the same thing as faith. It's not the same thing as saving faith. So knowledge is not synonymous with faith. It's certainly a component, but it's not synonymous. There's plenty of people who know about the Bible, but they don't believe it. So that second part, we, t- we talked about the word trust. James 1, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. We're not to the trust part yet, I'm sorry. 
we're talking about the second part, which would we would say is assent. So I know that that's true, but it's also true for me. So it's not just a truth that floats around out there. I mean, there's a lot of people who, like I said, would acknowledge Jesus was was a man. He he died on a cross. He he rose again from the third day, maybe even. But they'd say, I don't really care. It doesn't apply to me. It doesn't matter to me. So Ascent is saying that that truth, it makes an impact on me personally. It's something that, that is for me too. So that brings us to the third part, which, I, which I've already said a couple times now, which is trust. And that's probably the part that we, we most often equate faith with is trust but here we're talking about something a little bit more specific. I mean, you can have faith in your children to do the right thing. You can have faith that this table here is going to hold you up if you lean on it. But that's not what we're talking about. We're not just talking about a, a sort of a worldly kind of trust. We're talking about something that we can count on for eternity. We can bank our entire existence on. So Psalm 31, 14, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. And everything that that means, right? You've redeemed me. You've, you've uh, forgiven my sins in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. That means I have eternal life. Your promises are true to me. I can, I can rest on them just like I can rest on this table. I can, I can live my life around those promises and they're not going to give way underneath me. I can trust in them fully. I can rely on them. So, knowledge, assent, trust, those would be the three components of belief or, more specifically, faith in God. And I know, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about faith, a lot of people talk about believing in different things, uh, but we, we, we have to be careful that we do define what we're talking about when we, when we speak about faith. Uh, Lauren, do you have any questions or any final thoughts here before we wrap up today? Well, I think in, in some respect, too, this ties back into the first episode where um, we're talking about adding to the Bible or adding to the Word of God was, was it, when he's describing what the Trinity is, how we're supposed to understand it. We're not going to fully understand it because it, it just doesn't make sense to humans. But if we come up with other reasons for well, he just puts on hats. That, that's all it is. It's, it's just one person just putting on different hats. Well, that's adding to the Word of God. That's bad. Yeah. That's not what he says. So we have to trust in what he's saying is true, and that's where it all ties in. Yeah, what he's revealed to us. I, I, you made me think of another thing, too. So I, I know a lot of people walk around, they say, well, yeah, I believe in a God. I believe in God. But I don't, you know, the God I believe in, he would never send somebody who does fill in the blanks right. to hell. Right. My God is much more kind. So so obviously they don't, they don't really understand some of the things we discussed today, the right. attributes Just. of God. And they don't really, their their belief is not formed by what God has revealed. Their belief is formed by their own desires. What they want. What they want him to be. So they've created a God in their own image in a certain sense. So this is where this, this uh, topic does come full circle, as you said. By nature, we wouldn't know who this true God is or, or much about him. We know some things about him, but we don't know the most important things, you know, what he's done to save us or what his attitude toward us is, you know, who he is. For that, we have to have the revealed Word of God, the Bible, which we talked about last time. So we're going to continue with this. You'll see that there is sort of a logical sequence in our progression and the way we're approaching these topics. Hopefully this has been a beneficial discussion and study for you. Uh, and we would hope that you'll join us next time here on Under the Oaks. 
I'm Pastor Trent Sarge. And I'm Lauren Thompson. 